I'm Connie Jarlsberg. I've worked um, for the past 20 years in um, healthcare ministries in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was known as Zaire at that time, and in Uganda. And this is my colleague, Grace Tazlar, who's the missions director of NCF, Nurses Christian Fellowship, um, who also spent time in Uganda. And we know that Bonnie Adolph is here, who spent many years in Ethiopia. Um, I was waiting for panel members. Of, there's supposed to be a medical doctor here and um, a nurse from Pakistan who does nurse practitioner work. And when they show up, hopefully this morning, we will take advantage of them. But are there any other full-time career missionaries in the room? Nobody? All right. You're going to hear from Grace and I for sure. The way I wanted to run this panel was there are three-by-five cards on the table. If you're too shy to raise your hand and ask a question, just let me raise your hand with your card in it, and I'll come and get that. And Grace and I will address those questions. And we're going to rely on Bonnie, who we know was on the mission field for years and has all kinds of experience. This is in the missionary training track of our seminars, I think. Also on the table are your response cards. If you'll fill them out at the end of the session and just leave them on the table, the guys who are helping me will pick those up. So just to start out, I'll let Grace tell you a little bit about her ministry, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I did in Uganda, and then we'll be ready to field your questions. Hopefully this panel will show up. Um, well, I uh, taught nursing before I went on, on the mission field, so I had 12 years of teaching experience before I left, and then I went to Uganda, East Africa with the Christian Reformed Church. Um, my first three years were spent in the West Nile, you know the West Nile virus, that's where it came from, um, doing community health development work, training uh, community health workers in the village, and uh, mostly working with a Ugandan midwife who then took over that program and, and she was doing a fine job so I was ready to come back home and they asked me to stay on in Uganda to work with the Uganda Protestant Medical Bureau to help them begin their primary health care department and that was the beginning of the AIDS crisis in Uganda so I worked um, with the UPMB to uh, do their primary health care. We focused on, on improving the clinics that were supported by the Protestant churches in, in the country, worked with HIV AIDS, and then um, I, they were beginning the first baccalaureate nursing program in Uganda at McKenna University because I had taught nursing and began a baccalaureate program here in the States. Um, the Ministry of Health asked me to, to work with them on, on that project as well. So I had a variety of experiences um, there. And then um, the Lord led me back home. I was called to Mississippi, to the poorest state in the Union, to the two poorest counties in the United States, and worked with the Cary Christian Center to begin the lay health program. Well, it wasn't really begun. I worked with the lay health program there. Uh, that trained women in the community to do um, home visits for pregnant women and, and uh, their newborn babies and offspring. Um, through that program, we were able to reduce infant mortality in those two counties by over 50% using a lay health model. So um, I have both overseas experience and U.S. experience. And then Nurses Christian Fellowship approached me and, and said, um, would you come work with us um, so we can work with students and nurses who are interested in serving among the poor? And I felt because I had worked both here and abroad um, that that was a good fit and God was going to be able to use all of the things, the experiences he had given to me to, to help others um, carry on the work that he had started. Thanks, Grace. So me, I spent 18 years of my nursing career in burn emergency and trauma nursing. And by that time, I was in the Detroit Receiving Burn Center, which we used to call the Knife and Gun Club in the inner city of Detroit. And I remember saying to the Lord, I will do anything to get out of here. <laughs> anything. And um, I was involved in a Bible study with 12 professional women at that time. And we weren't really talking about missions necessarily, but we were very serious about our time with the Lord. And I'd never been with a group like that. We would meet on Tuesday night at 730 and when... People arrived at 7.30, they would start to pray. 
It was never a group that said, oh, my Aunt Hazel fell and broke her hip. Can we pray for her? Not that there's anything wrong with those kind of prayers, but we didn't do that. And when we heard people praying, we understood that that was the, the concern of their heart, and we joined them in that prayer. And then at 8 o'clock, we started the Bible study, and at 9 o'clock, we left. And once in a while, someone where, who was having us at their house would have coffee. And the next week, one of our members, I'll never forget, Kim would call us and say, you know, I just want to make sure that we're not about having dessert and coffee, that we're really about God at work in our lives. So with that background in the burn unit, I was getting very frustrated as the head nurse. And people say, how did you know that God was calling you into missions? Well, I got the call. I was literally standing in the burn unit one morning, and I was waiting for a report, and the phone rang. And I said to the nurses, go ahead and take report, and I'll answer the phone. And I answered the phone, and I said, burn unit, Connie. And the voice at the other end said, your friends have told you about told us about you, and we need a nurse just like you in the Ivory Coast in West Africa. Can you go? (laughs) And I looked, I did, I looked at the phone and said, "Um, well, I said, I'm starting a graduate program in the spring, but I could go for six months. And that's what I did. And as many people say with their short-term mission experience, that was life-changing. Um, I came home, finished my master's degree in bird emergency and trauma because I wanted to go into research at that point in time. And in January of that year, the phone rang again, and the same mission recruiter said to me, the people who worked with you in the Ivory Coast told us if we kept in touch with you, we'd get a career missionary, and if we let you go, you'd become a burn nurse researcher. So we're keeping in touch with you. And all of our missionaries who are on home assignment meet at the mission in January, and we like to invite guests to join us. So would you join us as a guest? So when I walked in, the first person I saw was the surgeon I'd worked with in the Ivory Coast, and he'd had a heart attack, and I thought I'd never see that man alive again. And he was the best surgeon I'd ever worked with anywhere. And I kept saying to the Lord, how can you let him die? Because he's doing such a valuable work with women in Cote d'Ivoire. And there he was. And he was a big man. And he engulfed me and he whispered in my ear, when are you going back to Africa? And I said, someone needs to show me the dotted line to sign. And he called the recruiter and said, we got her. (laughs) Get over here. So that was the beginning of my missionary career. So I, I didn't go back to the Ivory Coast. I went to Zaire at that time, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. I taught nursing in a little bush nursing school. I always say that I went to France and I studied French, and then I went to Belgium and studied tropical medicine in French, and then I went to the Congo, and I spoke something. And when it got to my students' ears, it really was French, and they really learned. It was amazing to me. And then the whole country fell apart, and the doctor and the pharmacist, whose wife was my best friend, all Congolese, the hospital administrator, came to my house one night and said, Mademoiselle, they always called me Mademoiselle. I didn't have a name. That was my name. (laughs) Mademoiselle, we love you, and we want you to stay here, but we can't protect you. So we know that you have missionaries in Uganda. Would you go to Uganda? So I crossed the border and went to Uganda and started working in an HIV-AIDS prevention program called True Love Waits. And then one of my missionary colleagues said to me, you do know that there's a Bachelor of Nursing Science program at Makedade that Grace Taslar helped write the curriculum. We didn't know each other at the time. I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, why don't you let me take you over there and introduce you to them, because maybe you could teach. So for the next 12 years, I taught undergraduate nursing students in Uganda. Today, there are three PhD-prepared nurses there, eight master's-prepared nurses on the faculty, and our other teaching assistants, were look, they are looking for scholarships for them anywhere in the world where they can get them a scholarship to study nursing. So and because of that, I had great freedom in the classroom. I could pray with them when I wanted to. I could start my class in prayer if I wanted to. There's great religious freedom in Uganda, so I had a lot of opportunity to pour into young nurses' lives, not only nursing, but their faith. So that's kind of who I am. In 2008, I came back to the States to take care of my dad, and Grace said to me, "Um, if you're going to be in the States, I really need someone to help me with missions and NCF. And so my Mission World Ventures seconded me to Nurses Christian Fellowship, where I've been their mission specialist for the past four years. 
and hopefully in January, early next year, I'll go back to Uganda. So that's kind of who we are. And I see my panel still hasn't shown up. We had, uh, I had asked a medical doctor who had a family to be on the panel and my colleague from my mission who is a nurse practitioner in pa Pakistan. But we are, are you here, Joanna? Come on up here. Joanna, I'm dying for you. <laughs> so we'll have Joanna tell her story quickly and then we'll be ready to answer your questions. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> well, I'm Joanna Beeler, and I uh, serve in the country of Pakistan with the Venture. Um, I started out as a short-termer back in 1983. Um, I'd had an interest in missions growing up, but I'd always wanted to be a nurse. My goal was not to be a missionary nurse but um, to be a nurse, and I, I was raised in a, a, a Bible-believing, missions-minded church, so I contacted missionaries for, um, for all my growing up years, and one of my contacts as a young child was with Linda Sharp, who um, was a missionary nurse in Ivory Coast, where Connie was at, and um, I graduated from nursing school and felt the Lord leading me to Bible school, and in Bible school I have a lot more input um, on missions. And when I discovered at the end of my second year, of, uh, first year of Bible school, that I could go to the mission field without having a seminary degree, then I really um, realized that it was time then to start to pray, start praying seriously about what the Lord wanted. And he eventually, um, I heard about the four, uh, five mission hospitals that our mission has. And I was thinking of Ivory Coast because I knew a missionary nurse there. But they told me that the greatest need at that time for nurses was in Pakistan. So, and I didn't even know the country existed um, when I was considering missions. Um, and um, when they told me that... Uh, that the uh, greatest need was there, I started to pray for Pakistan. And at that time, short-term missions was a year, and they asked me to go for two years. And I thought, well, if you go for one, you might as well go for two. I didn't have any plans. Uh, I had a time. I didn't have any agenda. And the Lord led me to go for a two-year period. And it's a women and children's hospital in a Muslim country. Um, we are quite free to share the gospel. Um, in the hospital, and we do that on a daily basis, praying with the patients as well as telling Bible stories and, uh, and selling and giving out literature. Um, at the end of my two years, I didn't know what the, how the Lord was leading, and should I come back? Um, and one of my struggles was being so uh, the the examples I saw in missionary nurses um, in front of me was that they were so busy in the hospital work that there wasn't uh, a lot of time to be involved in people's lives um, evangelistically and, and discipleship. And I really didn't want that. So I struggled. I knew the Lord wanted me to go back to school to get my Bachelor of Science degree in nursing, and I didn't understand why at that time. And so I followed his leading and went back to school and um, praying all this time, what, Lord, do you want for me to do? And do you want me to go back to Pakistan? Do you want me to do something else? And finally, um, my last semester of school, during my quiet time, it wasn't an audible voice, but it might as well have been. The Lord said to me, it's not your responsibility to write your own job description. That's my responsibility. So I said, all right, Lord, I'll go back to Pakistan and do whatever you want me to do. And about I went back in 90, and about five, six years later, I ended up in the position as nursing director at this hospital, doing the very thing that I didn't want to do. It was a struggle, but there are things about the, the position that I like, and um, it's where the Lord um, wants me to be at this time. 9-11 um, happened, and I left the country without a valid visa, and... Um, 
not knowing whether I could get back into Pakistan, what the Lord wanted me to do. I ended up for two months in Cote d'Ivoire, helping out in a clinic there. And I was in over my head, really. I mean, our hospital in, in Pakistan is just, is focused on obstetrics. And, and I was seeing patients with diseases I couldn't even pronounce, let alone didn't know how to treat. And I told the Lord, you know, if you want me to go come back to Cote d'Ivoire or some other place in the world, I need to have more training. Um, and it was then I started thinking about becoming a nurse practitioner. And when I got home from Cote d'Ivoire, I started that process. And at 17 years earlier, I had graduated from the BSN program. And you can't do in, uh, become a nurse practitioner without that degree. And uh, I didn't understand why the Lord wanted me to go back to school. 17 years later, uh, that understanding, he showed me why. And I love being a nurse practitioner. And if any of you are nurses and you'd like to come to Pakistan and you love administration, <laughs> i got a job for you. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. So questions for any of us? Yeah. Um, in Pakistan, in your hospital, you said you could share the Bible mm-hmm. within the hospital. We can share, too. On a, on Just a second. Did everyone hear that question? She was asking about, Joanna just said that they have great freedom to share the gospel within the hospital that she works, and, she, and the question was just raised, within the hospital or? Yeah, can you physically go outside? Can you physically go outside to yes, do that? we can go and visit um, friends, and we, the, the Bible women in the hospital, the two national women, they make regular visits into, uh, into the homes of patients, and they're quite free. And I can, I can do that also. I can share personally. In, in the early years, in the 50s, when the missionaries first came, they would go and in the bazaar. The men would, not the women. But they would go in the bazaar and um, uh, sing songs off the back of a jeep, a truck, and preach. You can't do that anymore. That would just cause too much unwanted attention. Um, but we sing, um, we sing songs, Christian songs in the Sindhi language. And somebody tells a Bible story, and we pray for the patients. We do that twice a day, Monday through Friday. And uh, we pray before every operation. I often pray in clinic with patients, especially our infertility patients. We pray for them. Um, And we sell the New Testament. We we sell it because then nobody can accuse us of um, pushing it on someone else. We sell it for a nominal fee. It's, I am in Pakistan on a missionary visa, actually. Yeah, next question. Um, I've seen a lot of response from the Muslim patients um, uh, with uh, accepting Jesus and into their lives. Uh, let, me just, let me just repeat the question, sorry. Cause the, we need to repeat it so that it gets Yeah, it, it needs to get recorded, and I want to make sure the whole room hears. This was a question about the response of Muslim patients to the gospel in Pakistan. This last year, I was told we were told by our Christian Ministries um, department that eight women had accepted the Lord in outlying villages. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Yeah. So the question is, how do you live in a culture where women have fewer rights than we experience here in this culture where we as women have all kinds of rights? Joanna, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's been so, I've been in the country for so long that um, it's, it's wonderful to come to, back to the States, get in my own car, and drive and have that freedom and nobody's looking at you and I can wear my jeans and I can go and do my own shopping. Um, I, I live I li- in Pakistan, the, the sexes are segre- separate and I live in a women's world and um, I, I just don't feel um, I don't feel that my rights are have been taken away. I mean, except that I'm limited in my travel. Um, God has given the grace. That's all. 
though, um, you know, the hospital ministry keeps me more bounded in the hospital than um, than actually the the Muslim culture. I mean, uh, I have to make an extra effort to get out, um, and there's only so many places you can go. And recently, I mean, it, I, it's a w- rural area for one thing. Um, in the bigger cities, there's a lot more freedom, and that's that's nice. There's a lot more freedom as a woman. Um, there are things you come in contact um, in the hospital with women that it's hard, you know, her husband won't let her have this treatment or they have to leave. Um, those things are, it can be difficult. And God has just given me a lot of grace. And I, and I think that's part of my personality. I'm more of a homebody. Um, but I really, too, enjoy, I mean, one of the things I miss is being able to uh, get out and, and walk. Um, uh, one of the things I enjoy is being able to be able to hike when I come home. Um, but God has provided a, a compound big enough that I can get out and walk on the compound. It's not the same as home, but uh, He's provided in that way. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind if I ask if, if you're single, and if so, in a Muslim country like Pakistan, what sort of Issues might you have come across? Yes, I am single. The question is, as a single woman in Pakistan, what kind of issues do you come across? Um, Well, there are things in the country where it's... um, In in the beginning, it was very... It was difficult because I had to rely on our... Uh, my missionary male colleagues to do the police work for me. And as an independent woman, that's kind of, that, is, that is difficult. Um, but as I've gotten older and feel more confidence in the culture and as a woman, then it's not... I, I've grown used to that. Um, there are some, some way... Um, there are some instances where it's a lot easier. You can get a lot, a lot thing. You can get a lot more done being a woman in that culture than than men do. Um, you get first. Um, they set you in the in the bank. You can you get shown into the to the bank manager's office. You get to go before all the other men. Um, again, God has given me the grace to be a single woman in in that culture. Um, and, and I've talked to other missionary women uh, who said, uh, come out short-term single and said, you know, I can't come back here as a single woman. Uh, I have to be married. And um, so it, it has its good points and its bad points. Um, uh, I've learned to depend upon the Lord for um, when... Uh, and I've... It would be wonderful to have uh, a husband to take care of a lot of things, to make those arrangements. Um, but uh, uh, in a hospital um, administrator, and uh, he, he's they're nationals, national men, and and they're they're there to help, and they do help. Yeah. Also, Connie and Grace, are you both single, and how is that? So that was a similar question for Grayson and I. And yes, we are single. And how does that affect our ministry? Grace, do you want to speak first and then I'll follow you? Yeah, I had, you know, said to the Lord I I would never go on the mission field single. And um, I have a spiritual mentor who um, was actually the founder of Pioneer Girls and, and was a single missionary nurse as well. And, and she said to me, she has words of wisdom that I just appreciate. Never say never to God. It's much too challenging a word. And so <laughs> um, the time came, and, and I still had not found uh, the love of my life or who I thought would fulfill me, and yet I was still being called to, to go to Uganda. So um, I, I just had to know that God knew what was best for me and it wasn't it wasn't being married um, 
at the, that time. Now, people keep telling me, um, you know, of all their friends who married when they were in their later years for the very first time, and so they said, don't rule that out. But um, so far, God has not brought anybody into my life. Um, I have said to folks that I think being single has allowed me to deepen my relationship with God um, in, in incredible ways because I have had to rely on Him for uh, direction and for uh, emotional strength and, and support and in, in so many ways um, going back to scripture and hearing his voice in my ear um, is, is a real blessing. I know that I have married friends who, who have that relationship with him too, but I think it's a little different when you're single and, and, and you're having to just trust, trust God. On the other hand, I look at um, my married friends and, and they talk about how their, their spouses have taken some of the rough edges off of their lives um, by being honest with them and confronting them. And I haven't had anybody to do that. So I've had to really work at um, hearing, having friendships where they're honest with me and, and help me to develop in, in that way. And so as a single person, what you tend to do is have friends that are for specific and, and have very important places in your your life um, that address different parts of who you are and minister to you in, in that way. And hopefully you can do the same for them. The other thing that I found is I could never have done what I have done in my career, in my life, mm-hmm. as a married woman. Um, it just would be much too demanding to do that. And, and, and God knew that. He, he knows who I am. He knows what my strengths and my weaknesses are. And he kept me single because he needed me for the purposes that he had in mind. So he has equipped me and provided in, in that way. Uh, and I, I have always felt very honored and very blessed to, to have been his child and to be able to be his partner in ministry. Yeah, I would echo that as well. I wouldn't recommend this, but this is what I did. I, um, I was engaged when I was about 26, and that engagement fell through. And I remember saying to the Lord very clearly, I said, you know what? If I don't get married by the time I'm 30, I'm just going to forget about it, okay? <laughs> no, I'm not advocating that anybody do that. But obviously, I didn't get married by the time I was 30. And I really do believe that singleness is a gift. I really do. I I have many, many friends who are single who are still, some of them still saying to the Lord, why didn't you give me the one thing I wanted, which was a husband and children? Now, I never wanted to be a mother. Grace and I were just talking about this in our room last night. I would have been a horrible mother. I would have raised neurotic children. I mean, God knows. God knows. And and the same thing that Joanna and Grace have said. I couldn't do the kind of ministry that I've done if I had been married. Um, when I went to Uganda, I was the only single missionary on our team. And so for me to find social outlets, I had to make friends with Ugandan women. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, had a, I have a group of wonderful single Ugandan women. And in Uganda, to have value in their culture, you have to have, and this is their word, produced. You have to have had a child, and then you have value. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. Prior to having the child, it's a very bad thing to be pregnant outside of marriage. But once the baby arrives, it's a wonderful thing. A child is a blessing, and then they have value. These seven friends of mine chose to follow the Lord and to say, If I have to have a child without a husband in Uganda to have value, I won't do that. And they are wonderful, accomplished, career women. I lived in the capital city, so I knew many university graduates. But it was just my opportunity to open my home to them and say, you can come whenever you want to. And I'll never forget the first Friday nights. One of them showed up at my house with an overnight bag, and I said, oh, did you want to spend the night? 
And she said, could I? I said, yes, of course you could. Now, if I had a husband and family, I wouldn't probably have been able to do that. I would have had to say, well, let's arrange for us to spend time together somewhere, whatever. But they came, eventually, all seven of these women came and would spend weekends with me. We would have wall-to-wall mattresses upstairs in my house. And I'll never forget the day that I heard, I was in my room by myself that time. I think there were four of them. They were in the guest room. And I heard them early in the morning. And I said, are you guys all awake? And they said, go get your coffee and come and sit on the bed and listen to our stories. And Ugandan culture opened for me that day in a way it never had before. But it was because I was there and I could open my home and I could make pizza for them. That's all I ever made in pizza in Uganda was pizza for Ugandans. I said, I can make other things. And they go, no, we can't get pizza anywhere else. I was like, okay. So I was the pizza hut of Kampala. But we would make pizza and we would talk and we would pray and we would spend time together. But I think that that's a ministry God opened for me because I'm a single woman. And then my dad came to see me. His single daughter, who never gave him a grandchild, he traveled halfway around the world to come and see me. And I can't tell you what that said to Ugandans. Suddenly, these particularly, these women who I spent time with, who I had really struggled trying to explain to them the unconditional love of God, they suddenly saw my father, who unconditionally loved me and came across the world to see me. And they then understood who God the Father was. Now, I couldn't have said to my dad, come to Uganda and tell these women who God is. He was just who he was. And because he was who he was, they understood God. Harriet came to me and said, it was her birthday. My dad was there. We had a birthday party. She said, your dad sang happy birthday to me. I said, Harriet, my dad sings happy birthday to me every year. We, we are four hours apart. He's never forgiven me for being born four hours before his birthday. He said, he sings happy birthday to me every year. Faith came to me and said, Connie. I think your dad likes me. I said, Faith, my dad loves you. And my ministry partner, Faith Kambabazi, and my dad were like this. I mean, they just were attracted. Faith's father left her when she was three. She never saw him again. But my dad came, and he traveled with us when we were doing AIDS prevention work. And Faith and I were in the car, and my dad and our other ministry partner, Andrew, we're in the car, and we drove around Uganda, and my dad just was with us. And, you know, it's those kind of things. You know, granted, my father might have come and visited me if I was married and had grandchildren, maybe more often. But because he was there and who he was, and he came to see a single daughter, those women, and now have watched them grow in their faith in remarkable ways. So, yeah, way in the back. Thank you so much for your example. Oh, thanks. Uganda in 1996. I'd been in the Congo before that, but Grace was there in 1986 during the, the war shortly after that, so I'll let her talk about that. Yeah.
government back for Idi Amin and then the final overthrow of his government. And everybody in, in the West Nile had been traumatized by these three wars and didn't know what side they were supposed to be on um, because you were darned if you did and darned if you didn't, um, uh, whichever side you took on, on that score. So we were busy resettling the refugees um, from the Amin era. And um, it, was, it was a very traumatic time. The, the whole country had been devastated. And, and at the time I, was, I went to Uganda, um, the president was Obote. They called it Obote too because he had been president before Idi Amin and he had become president after Idi Amin. And they were people who were trying to overthrow Obote. So we were still in a civil war when I arrived. Um, the devastation of war is, is and being in, in a war is one of those things that does change your life. Um, you have to really rely on, on, on God and um, for your safety and, and all of that. Um, I was sharing with Connie last night some of my recollections. Um, the just the, he just retired. The Archbishop of Uganda um, had been the youth director of the West Nile Diocese, and he's a good friend of mine. And he taught me about spiritual warfare and all that was going on in, in the West Nile, um, something that we in the West don't always understand <laughs> um, how, how difficult that is. So... Um, it was not an easy time. There was times when we had no meat. They didn't slaughter cattle because it was worth more on the hoof than it was in the marketplace. So we were, I didn't have electricity or running water or, or any of those things where the West Nile had had satellite telephone service before that. So it wasn't like they, they didn't know what life should be, but we were reduced again to rebuilding mud thatch houses and trying to get people resettled. Um, so I don't know if that answers that question. But it, and then we were hit um, with this disease that people just wasted away. And we didn't know what it was. And, and people were dying um, by the hundreds and thousands. And, and it wasn't, um, it was my second or third year there that we identified this as, as the HIV virus. And the disease was called slim back then and then changed to AIDS. And then we had this massive uh, disease on top of a civil war. Um, so it was, it was not an uh, easy time to be in Uganda. Uh, when I went back uh, a couple of years ago with Connie, I didn't, even know where I was. I mean, there's been so much change in the country. When I was there, um, if you were white and you met another white person, you knew that person. Um, there just weren't many white people in the country, and if you didn't know them, you made sure you got introduced. Um, now, when I got on the plane, it was like everybody was white. And I said, what? <laughs> I'm going to Uganda. Everybody's white. And, 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 and there were so many uh, tourists and, and people involved in missions and the orphan programs. And, and there was just, you know, like a handful of Africans on the plane. And I thought, this is a totally different picture. And this was only, you know, in 25 years. So God has done incredible things in the country. And I'll let you speak to the... Let me just speak briefly to the Lord's Resistance Army and Joseph Kony in northern Uganda that was going on. When I was there, I know a lot of you young people have probably heard about that. Um, that was a 20-year, I don't even know what to categorize it as, Grace. It wasn't really a civil war. Joseph Coney didn't have an agenda. I don't, we don't know. Yeah, Alice Laquina, who was the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the 1990s through just recently. Yeah. Probably five years ago, he left northern Uganda and sadly went to southern Sudan and northeast Congo, which is where Joseph Kony is now. Fortunately, those areas are less populated than northern Uganda. 
um, and his troops have fallen from maybe a high of 600 down to 30 rebels. He never had an agenda. He was never trying to overthrow the government. Um, we just don't really know what Joseph Coney was all about. It was all I can, it was evil, demonic kind of things. He would stop buses and cut people's noses and lips and ears off and then send the bus on. Or he would steal children from the village, to the little boys to become soldiers and the little girls to become his wives. Those kind of things were going on. Um, just four hours north of the capital city. Um, and that's, one of my colleagues started a child sponsorship program and one of the places where she's located is in Gulu for the internally displaced children, the child-headed households. Um, though Uganda's a resilient country and they're starting to re re-establish themselves from that problem. Um, there are multiple, multiple organizations in Uganda working with um, orphan children and refugee children and children who were little boy soldiers and working with the little girls who, who are now teenagers and are mothers and those kind of things. There are many organizations working with those, including our own. Um, but that's the latest political issue in Uganda, demonic issue, I would say. But yeah, like Grace said, we don't really understand spiritual warfare in this country. We understand there's God and there's us. But we don't understand that middle layer. I mean, we might acknowledge angelic presences, but we don't really want to deal with the demons at all. And I think, and maybe Joanna can speak to this in Pakistan, but I know in Africa we talk about they're very spiritual. Well, they know about the spirits in ways that we don't know. In, w in ways that we need to understand. And that's what Grace was saying last night, that it was Henry O'Rombie who helped her understand that we really are in a spiritual battle. We just don't like to deal with that. And many of the things that we encounter, I often think, you know, I would often, I worked in the National Teaching Hospital in Kampala. It's a long story, and I'll tell some of you later if you want to hear about that. But I would pray the blood of Jesus over myself before I walked into that place in the morning because I always felt there was some kind of demonic presence in that hospital. And I often thought about how Jesus healed the sick because he was worried about the whole person. He was worried about our bodies, our souls, and our spirits. And I always think that, you know, there was, you know, not to say that all disease is called by, caused by demons because it's not, but some of them literally are. And I always felt that presence in that hospital. But God always protected me. Um, so, yeah, that's just some of the kind of war that goes on. Um, we have about five minutes left. Anybody have burning questions? Yeah. I was going to ask, what are first steps that you would recommend for people who are interested in long-term medical missions? So first steps about what to do if you're interested in long-term medical missions. Who wants to cover that? I'll be happy to. But. I think you're the expert on that. Yeah, I, actually I work right now as I work with Nurses Christian Fellowship and I also work as a mission coach with my mission. So I've been walking people through those first steps. I think the first step is that you come to a place where you really feel that God is calling you to do something. And then you ask him to give you a vision. Of what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? Just like Joanna said, uh, you know, God said, you're not here to set your agenda. It's just really... I just heard one of our missionary, we had a conference call the other day, and one of our recruiters said, and I'll never forget this, because I hadn't thought about this. He said, you know, when I make that initial phone call to a missionary candidate, I really pray about that because I might be talking to the next Hudson Taylor, or I might be talking to the next Gladys Allward, and we might be talking to those people right here. So I, th I want to cast a vision for people to say, you know, don't decide what God wants you to do. Ask God, what is it that you're asking me to do? And then I would think about where do I want to do that? And then who do I want to do that with? I would never, I know there are a lot of lone rangers coming out of the United States today. I would never recommend that. I am much better because of the missionary team that I work with. There are people that hold me accountable. There are people that I have to report to. Um, I know a lot of ministry gets done without those kind of accountability structures, but I need that kind of ability, accountability structure. So I would recommend 
seek out organizations that are doing what you think God's calling you to do, um, who will hold you accountable to what God is calling you to do. Um, and you want a prayer structure. You want, you want to let some spiritual leader in your life know, I think God is calling me into missionary service of some kind. Will you pray with me? We don't let missionaries go in the field without prayer supporters. We all know that we need financial supporters, but our mission does not let us go unless they know we have a team of people praying for us. So that's the next thing I would say. Get some prayer support. Pray about it. Talk to spiritual leaders. Talk to people who know you, your spiritual life, your work life, your personal habits, like Grace was saying. You know, as single women, we have peop- we're like iron sharpening iron. You know, people in your life who will help you with those rough edges. Um, things that you need to deal with long before you get on the mission field. Um, our mission coach is for long-term ministry. We're good at long-term ministry. So I sometimes, I've been coaching some people for a couple of years now. And I also meet a lot of people who say, but I wanted to go yesterday. And there are some people that I send yesterday. We have ways to do that. But we really coach for long-term. And we want you to persevere where God has sent you. Not just to be there for two weeks or two months and burn out. We want people with long-term commitments. At least in our part of the world, relationships are what it's all about. And you've got to have relationships. And I learned in Uganda, you can never say goodbye. I left in 2008. They were the people who said, please come back. I was flabbergasted by that. So I felt like my work was done. <laughs> you weren't, I felt like my work was done. And they said, oh, no, you need to just be with us. If I didn't do anything, and I was just with them. So you need to understand all of those kind of things. I've kind of blabbed on, but you guys might have some more practical things to share. <laughs> First steps we're talking about. Well, I agree with everything you said, you know, making uh, know, making sure that uh, the first the first step is to know what God wants. And then, you know, you might not know the specifics. Um, you knock, start knocking on doors. And uh, like my direction was changed from, from the continent of Africa to the continent of Asia. And um, praying over each step, uh, Lord, what do you want? And... Um, Learning to listen uh, is very important. And finding out what your interests are. You know, there's a plenty of uh, uh, mission agencies here. And what is your interest? And do they have a position open in, in a certain country? Are you interested in a certain country? Praying about if you're interested in a certain country, begin to pray over that country. Um, get uh, updates and prayer letters from... Um, workers in that country and start praying about those things and the Lord will the Lord will lead step by step. I think too, what are your gifts? You know, what do you bring to that ministry? That's one of the other things I ask candidates. What do you think your gifts are? What are your strengths? You know, how how do you think God can use you? That's yeah. One last question that we can answer in thirty seconds or less, yeah. <laughs> So the question is about hostility that you encounter these days in the, within the Muslim world, directed to Joanna. Um, the political... Uh, is your microphone off? Here, I'll give you mine. The political situ- situation is more tenuous now than it used to be. Um, And what they're doing now is is they're denying visas. Um, And there are kidnappings that occur. And we have to be careful about um, not um, going the same, using the same route. Uh, We've had uh, seminars on how to prevent yourself from being kidnapped and what to do if you are. 
um, and what places to stay away from, such as the five-star hotels. Those are not safe places to be. Um, uh, uh, these fast food restaurants, we have Pizza Hut and McDonald's, and those are the places that are uh, bombed. And uh, it, uh, God has given me um, the grace to live in that situation. And I don't really, um, there's a lot of things you hear in the media here that, uh, I mean, uh, uh, that um, we, we don't have contact with. I mean, I'm actually in a safer place. If you want to, in the country that I'm in, um, it's pretty safe there. It's a rural area. There's only a few of us um, uh, Caucasians, uh, Americans, and we're not a big target. Um, terrorists are all over the country. Um, but um, I have not been afraid. And, uh, that, and that is one of the things that I, I have become to recognize that uh, a lot of people are afraid of that country, and actually, I feel that um, Afghanistan is is worse than their neighbor next door. Um, you know, it's it's interesting how God gives you peace, and uh, I mean, I feel like there are places where I'm from Phoenix. There are places in Phoenix that I would not feel comfortable going, but to go um, over the other side of the world. Is, is not that big of a deal for me anymore. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks for all of you who've been in attendance this morning. Let me just pray for us really quickly. Father God, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to gather here today to talk about ministry, to talk about what you might want us to do. We pray that you would speak to each of the hearts of these people who've attended, who've listened to us, that you would use them in the areas of the world that you've called them. In Jesus' name, amen. So leave your uh, papers on the table. There are guys who are coming around to pick those up. And thank you so much.